I've watched a lot of people step right out of that and understand that they have that fear of outshining, but go ahead and breathe through it, acknowledge it, and go ahead and do what you want to do anyway. Hey, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Podcast. Today, we have an amazing human being back on the show, Dr. Gay Hendricks. Really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. But before we dive in, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been curious about having your own podcast? Have you been wanting to start your own podcast? If you're thinking about it and you want some of the nuts and bolts to get started, we have an awesome checklist for you that could really help. If you want the free checklist, you can go to kathyheller.com slash checklist. Pretty easy. Let us know what you think. I think that it'll really help you to get started. It has some really good nuggets and information in there. So you're in for such a treat today because the delightful Gay Hendricks is back. He's the founder of the Hendricks Institute, a New York Times bestselling author. He spent over 40 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies. He's written over 40 books, including one of my all-time favorites, The Big Leap. And he has a new book coming out tomorrow. It's called Your Big Leap Year, a year to manifest your next level life starting today. It's a 366-day guide to maximizing wealth, love, and creativity. If you're a fan of The Big Leap, then you're going to love this because it takes the big goals that are explored in his book and breaks them into small daily steps so that you can move into action and stop pushing aside your dreams. And if you haven't read The Big Leap, then go get a copy of that book because it's such a game changer. It's always such an honor to have Dr. Hendricks on the show. He has this incredible zest for life. He has such a beautiful heart. He shares so much of his goodness and wisdom. So let's get into it. Without further ado, please welcome the wonderful Gay Hendricks. So first of all, welcome back. We've had you on the show before. It's always such a pleasure to have you on and the audience just eats you up. So thank thank you you. for being here. And I feel like it's such a perfect time to have you here as we are finishing off one year and heading into the next year, because the new idea of this book is to help people sort of break things down into daily actions that can really feel like progress. But I'm curious before we even get into that, in case people have not read the original or in case people don't know your work, just give us a decent understanding of what a big leap is. What does it mean that we sort of have this leap that we can make, that we want to make? And then we'll sort of get into the new book and how that is so helpful in in achieving it. Yes. Well, in the original Big Leap book, I designate four different areas that people spend their time in. The highly desired one is the genius zone, where you're doing what you most love to do, and you're doing what makes your biggest contribution to life. Unfortunately, due to programming and life, sometimes we spend our time in three other areas that aren't the same. And one of them is called the zone of incompetence, where you're doing things you're not any good at and you don't like doing. So unfortunately, a lot of us still are stuck in doing things in our zone of incompetence. The zone of competence is okay, but it's where you're doing stuff you're good at, but somebody else could do just as well. The third zone where some of us get stuck still is in the zone of excellence where you're doing things you're good at and that make you money and get you out of girls and out of boys, but it's not really speaking to your true essence, what you most love to do. 
So I started catching on to this, oh gosh, now 40 some years ago. And I realized that I was only spending about one hour out of my own day in my genius zone. Yeah. And so I started focusing on building that up. And as it happened, I was working at the time with a bunch of Silicon Valley executives who are incredibly brilliant people, but they would keep messing up over and over again in all sorts of odd ways. And I started thinking about that and I called it the upper limit problem, that they would get to a certain degree of success and then bonk, they would do something to mess up, either create a drama at home or a drama at work or an illness or an accident. And so I began working with that and helping people eliminate, first of all, eliminate their uh, upper limit problems, but also helping people make decisions that guide them into their genius zone. And it's, you know, I'm not going to say it's an overnight process because it literally took me years to go from one hour a day in my genius zone up to eight or nine hours in my genius zone. But it was all good because I was always expanding my genius zone. And so, um, that's what the new book is all about. It's all about taking 365 little leaps every day that will build on each other. And actually 366, because we put this new book out on a leap year. And so it's called your big leap year. And so we want to give people something they can do every single day to move their lives a little bit more into the genius zone. Yeah, those are all such really beautiful things to unpack a little bit more and dive into. One of the things I'm curious about, and I know that you go over this in the original, the first book, which is The Big Leap is This Upper Limit. And I know that as people are continuing to grow and have a more fulfilling life, I've heard people talk about how we sort of allow for more expansion at the speed of safety. You know, there's something about our nervous system and our preconditioning that as you were sort of referencing, the more things start to feel good, there's a feeling at some point of this feels new and therefore it might be too good and therefore I might not be safe or whatever the preconditioning is. And then it kind of allows us this way in which we sort of we sabotage. And I know that while people want to have a big leap year, if we're working against ourselves and we're not really clear about the awareness around how we might sabotage ourselves, I, I want to just get a little bit more clarity on that first. How can we understand that so that we can push through what would normally be an upper limit and allow for more well-being and more of our desired outcome? Well, that's the great question that I began asking myself because, well, I think I told the story in The Big Leap, but I'll tell it a brief version of it again. How I first saw this in myself, I was Stanford. I got hired there for a year to fill the place of one of my professors who was going on sabbatical. So it was a great way to start my academic career. You know, yeah. one day I'm a PhD student, next day I'm a Stanford professor. So I did that for a year before I went out to the University of Colorado and started my main career in 1974. But anyway, I was sitting in my office and I was feeling really good. My research was going great. And I had just come back from lunch with a colleague where he told me how his research was going great. And so I was doing what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was doing a good job of it. 
And so I was sitting in my office feeling really satisfied. The very next thing I started thinking about my daughter, who was six at the time, and I had taken her out that day to her first going to be three-day sleepover camp. And she was very excited about it. I was, of course, very excited for having three days off. And uh, so I, I got back and all this good stuff happened. And so I was sitting there just after lunch and I started thinking about Amanda and I was thinking, oh, I bet she's really lonely. She doesn't really know any of those other girls. Oh, gosh. You know, and I pictured her sitting over in the corner feeling lonely and miserable. And so I got caught up in that thought and I called the director of the program whom I just met that day, a very lovely person. And I said, hi, this is Dr. Hendricks. I'm, uh, I was concerned about my daughter. It's her first sleepaway camp. And, and I was afraid she's you know, feeling lonely. And the woman's really kind to me. She says, well, in actual fact, she said, I can see Amanda. She's out kicking a soccer ball around with a bunch of girls out of the field. And she looks like she's perfectly happy to me. But if I may say so, Dr. Hendricks, you're the third parent that's called me this morning with similar kinds of concerns. And she said, consider the possibility that you might be the one that's feeling lonely without me. You know? And suddenly I figured, why did I put all this work into getting a Stanford PhD in psychology <laughs> for the last three years? <laughs> but, you know, the, the old surgeon, you know, surgeon heal thyself, you know, just because you're a psychologist doesn't mean you've mastered all your own quirks. Uh, but anyway, so I was sitting in my office afterwards. Why did I suddenly go from feeling good to picturing my daughter suffering? And I realized, oh my goodness, I have an allergy of sorts to feeling good. I can only tolerate so much of it before I visualize something terrible happening. Exactly. And it was just a revelation to me. And so I, I began looking at that in all areas of my life, because what we're really talking about is F-E-A-R, fear, false evidence appearing real. You know, so I suddenly, because of my own allergy to feeling good all the time, I dialed up a painful thought that I knew would kill off my good feeling. Because all you got to do to somebody feeling good if they're a parent is say something even potentially negative about one of their children, you know, and you immediately go, plunk. So that was my first clue. And so, like I said, I was working with all these brilliant Silicon Valley people that were inventing the future, basically, you know, because Apple was just getting started. Intel was there. All these things that became world famous were just starting back in the 1970s. And so I realized it's not about your IQ. It's not about how smart you are. It's about fear. It's about the fears that each of us kind of stores up as we're growing up. And then those later become the fears that are between us and reaching our full potential. It's like in childhood, we get certain gates put up around ourselves and then adulthood is figuring out how to get through those gates out to the larger world. And so I eventually identified just a small handful of fears that were underneath the upper limit problem. The most prominent one, even with people that were like Harvard MBA, that's the head of a Silicon Valley company, he's got this fear underneath that he's fundamentally flawed in some way. 
And I kept running across that one and even the most successful people where they'd all come through as a kid thinking they were the wrong color or the wrong size or the wrong gender and had internalized that feeling of being fundamentally flawed in some way. And so I began to help people identify these fears that were underneath their upper limit problem. And that eventually led to writing The Big Leap. Well, I remember so clearly not only how I felt reading The Big Leap for the first time, but I remember that story in detail. And I remember that she was playing soccer when you called. I mean, that's how much that I could feel it because I could relate to that feeling. So when somebody experiences that feeling, what do we do if we're about to sabotage ourselves or we're not able to feel courageous enough to keep allowing the good to flow? What do we do so that we can have a tool to sustain it? Yes. Well, it's what around here we call Hendrix aerobics. It's a one aerobics move. It goes like this. Ha. Ha. In other words, you see something out there in the world. Oh, I'm doing it again. Go. What am I afraid of? And go to the source of that fear. So that's your first move is to stop thinking it has to do with the world and put your attention on what is my fear that's keeping me from showing up in the world. But that's a tough one because a lot of us aren't used to making that move. You know, in fact, you have world-famous politicians that are all about blame, 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 but you never ever hear them saying, what are we doing to contribute to this problem? You know, it's all about the other people are causing the problem and we can solve it, which everybody just knows is BS, but we all kind of go along with the fantasy. Sure. Well, well, as we look towards making 2024 and every year, hopefully feel like progress, I think, first of all, I want to define progress because I think sometimes people buy a book like your new book or they join a gym or they start couples therapy or they take on some version of a good habit and they wind up getting off course and then they give up. So before we even, you know, begin, since there's like a 365 day sort of record of prompts and and ways that we can sort of find our way to new habits and things, what can we talk about in terms of how to set ourselves up for success and what really is progress? And how can we lean into something that we might not be already so great at, like making a big leap and sustaining it or whatever it might be? How can we lean into this project and set ourselves up not to wind up getting off course by day 13? Yes. Well, there's one big word that you'll get familiar with in the big leap and in the new book, your big leap year, and that is the subject of commitment. So commitment gets you into the game. It's your entry ticket to breaking up an old habit or creating a new habit. Somewhere along the line, you've got to make a heartfelt commitment to it. I have a friend that I see all the time who lives here in my town, he and his wife. We sometimes get together with them socially. And he's a longtime recovering alcoholic, very successful person, but lost like 11 years of his life to major league addiction. And he told me that up until the day he made the commitment at the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, 
a thousand times he'd said, I'm going to quit drinking. And friends of his had said, you've got to quit drinking. He'd say, yep, I've got to quit drinking. But there was something happened on that particular day where he stood up for the first time and said, you know, my name's John. I'm an alcoholic. I don't know what to do. And I don't know how to solve the problem. Before then, he was always, I can solve it. I can handle this. And then to admit that he was powerless over it gave him the freedom to make a commitment to not taking a drink that day which he did. And then he's strung that now into 19 years Mm -hmm. of those one day at a time. And so it's a beautiful thing to see, but it all hinges on commitment because until you can stand up and say, okay, I, in all my heart and all my mind, I make a heartfelt commitment to losing the 20 pounds or going back to school or whatever the thing is. But here's the other thing, Kathy, and that is that Around here at the Hendricks Institute, we teach people to be like an automatic pilot of an aircraft. Like if you get on the plane in New York and you're going to LA, the automatic pilot, the the pilot types in the coordinates and says, okay, we're going to LA. But once the plane gets up in the air and the automatic pilot is turned on, it doesn't go in a straight line to LA. That would be impossible. What it does is good at detecting drift. And so it says, oh, we're drifting a hair to the right. Let's correct to the left. Now we're drifting a little to the left. Let's, and it does this hundreds of times a minute. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. And it's always making corrections. Now that's a superb image to carry because you're always going to be drifting off and breaking a habit or, I love you, know, that. you know, and now just get back onto the drift around here. We say, catch the drift and make the shift. So you notice, oh, shoot. I just realized I broke my no sugar commitment by having a lifesaver, you know, which may have had 10 calories. But then you say, okay, since I've broken my, I'll go ahead and order the triple banana split. Exactly. But it's much easier to think of yourself as a recommitment machine. You want to get into the game with a commitment. Well, what's going to get you there is recommitment, recommit, recommitment. You know, like I uh, suffered from childhood obesity. I had the problem with my pituitary and thyroid glands that didn't even get figured out until I was later on in life. So there was no cure to it, although I was taken around to a bunch of different medical people and one year I was put on uh, diet pills. So I was a kid in the ninth grade. It was, you know, but I made straight A's that year because I couldn't sleep at night, you know? So uh. sure, I'll study till three o'clock in the morning, you know? It was the only year of my high school that I made straight A's. As soon as they took me off the amphetamines, I went back down to being a regular old. And I, I made some A's and some B's and some C's, but so I spent my ninth grade completely hopped up on amphetamines. Oh my God. And I lost weight during that period. But as soon as they took me off the pills, I gained back weight again. So to make a very long story short, when I was 24 years old, I still was trying to deal with my weight. By then I weighed 300 pounds. And by the way, I'm six feet tall and I weigh about 180. So <laughs> if you looked at me my walking gosh. by, you'll... You'll say, there goes an athletic old guy. And I do. I work out three days a week at the gym and play sports and ride my bike and stuff like that. Wow. So I kind of work at it and play at it. But anyway, what happened when I was 24, I had an enlightenment experience 
that showed me what the real problem was. And I had this moment, actually, it came in the form of a slip and fall. I slipped on some ice in New England, taking a walk, and I went down on my back, and a 300-pound person weighs about as much as a refrigerator does, so it's a boom, you know, I really boom down on my back. At the time, I weighed 300 pounds, more than 300 pounds. I was in a really toxic relationship. I smoked two or three packs of Marlboros a day. I was in a crappy job, didn't like my car, didn't like where I was living, so all my cylinders were not firing well in my life. And so I had this slip and it didn't knock me out unconscious, but it knocked me out of my, I call it, I had an out of Hendrix experience. It knocked me out of my usual way of seeing myself. And I could see all these emotions inside that I'd never opened up to and talked about in any way. But the thing was, down at the bottom of everything in myself, I saw what I came to call pure consciousness which is this gift we all have of the pure consciousness of just pure being. We cover it over with all of these different layers of programming. And so my programming had me thinking of myself as fundamentally flawed, you know, because I was fat. I couldn't figure out how to deal with it. And I was taken around to all these different medical specialists. So I became fundamentally flawed. That was my way of thinking of myself. So Later on in life, over the next year, when I started applying this new knowledge I'd just gotten, I lost 100 pounds within a year by only doing one diet thing, which was eating foods that felt like they fed my new pure consciousness instead of my old 300-pound body. So I started discovering these things, Kathy, called fruits and vegetables is new concepts in my life. And I began choosing a couple of apples and some yogurt for lunch rather than a triple-decker cheeseburger with the fries and chocolate shake. And so, oh, here's the first upper limit problem that I had with my diet, although I didn't know what to call it at the time. In the first month, I lost 35 pounds. I felt like a million dollars. I'd lost 10% of my body weight in a month. And even though I would have still looked fat to the outside world, I mean, I felt completely different. And I'd gone down to Cambridge, Massachusetts for the weekend, and I was walking down the street very briskly heading toward the uh, Harvard bookstore. And I looked to my left, and there was an ice cream shop with a family of four devouring this triple-decker ice cream sundae kind of thing. And I I just lost it. I went completely unconscious, and I went in there and I ordered one of them for myself, and I ate this thing, and for about 20 minutes, wow, while I was riding the sugar high, I felt like the king of the world. But then 20 minutes later, I was walking down the sidewalk, and I actually doubled over. I got such a bad stomach ache, I couldn't walk. I doubled over in the street, and people were saying, are, are you okay, sir? And and no, I wasn't okay. It was my first major. I didn't know what to call it, but I went from feeling great to having the Sunday, which destroyed my diet. Boom. And it literally took me days to get that toxicity out of my body, going back to my consciousness diet again. So there was my automatic pilot again. I had to recommit after that blow up on the streets of Cambridge, Mass. It's a great example. 
It's a great example. And it's so powerful that that one change of the what would feed the conscious part of me. I mean, it's such a great tool. So for those that are going to buy this book or lean into that big leap in their life, what can you help them to see as far as what's possible? You know, for a lot of people, the reason they sometimes don't commit is because they don't believe it's even possible. So why bother? <laughs> so number one, how do we start to believe in what's possible when we have a a hard wiring towards sort of this learn helplessness around something we really want? So we, we just don't commit because we don't see the possibility. And then what can you show us that is a potential that we could actually invite into our life? Yes. Well, one of the things we do here is when an executive person comes to us, one thing they do is they go in a little room by themselves, just a chair in there. And for 10 minutes, we ask them to ask what we call a wonder question, which is a question you don't know the answer to, but a question that would really change your life if you did. And so the first wonder question we give them is we say, Hey, what do I most love to do? And then we invite the person to take three easy breaths, which takes about 30 seconds. And then we ask them to say the question again in their mind or out loud. What do I most love to do? Because the future that you're going toward is a future where you're doing the things you most love to do. That's your primary activity. And the byproduct of that is that it changes the lives of other people too, that it makes a positive contribution to other people. So the way I describe the ideal state of life is not that you're going around just grinning high all the time. Wow, you know, you could get that effect by soaking in a hot tub probably, but really to get a permanent enduring sense of good flow of energy inside, you've really got to aim toward doing things that you love to do. And at the beginning, maybe you only can do those for 10 minutes a day or an hour a day or something like that. But that's the place you've got to start. And then you need to make a commitment to growing that. One of the things we ask people to do in our intensives here is to uh, use a couple of mantras. Like one of them is, every day I grow my genius more and more. And every day I do more and more of what I most love to do. And every day I do more and more of what I love to do and what makes the biggest contribution to other people's lives. So gradually, you know, it's like that old joke about the person comes up to the cop in New York and says, how do I get to Carnegie Hall? And the cop says, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> it's, it's really practicing certain simple things like, is this thing I'm about to eat, will that contribute to my pure consciousness and my genius? Or will that take me away from pure consciousness and my genius? So that's a very simple thing you can ask yourself. Another simple thing is, let's say you get a call from someone and they're asking you to do something, which is going to happen. The more successful you get in life, the more people are going to call you and ask you to do things. So it's one of the immutable laws of the universe. <laughs> and so you got to get better and better and better at saying your yeses and your noes very carefully. Because in my view, we get to where we want to get in life partly by becoming masters of yes and masters of no. 
So we've got to know what we want. You know, what do I most want? Uh, some years ago, I wrote a little book called Five Wishes, where I suggest that everyone should sit down someday for an hour and make up their five big lifetime goals. And uh, actually, in the book, I sometimes call them deathbed goals, because I say, if you're on your deathbed 50 years from now, and your life has been a success, what mm-hmm. made it a success? So I ask people to kind of look at it from the end of their life, as well as from where they are now. So for me, for example, when I really did that, I was in my early 30s, and I realized, number one for me, I wanted to create a relationship with a woman with whom I could grow and change over the years, where we could live our lives together and grow together. I had not had that. I'd had a bunch of relationships since I was a teenager, and they usually lasted from, say, six months to maybe two years or something like that. One I'd been in for four years, but I didn't count it because we weren't speaking to each other for about two of those years. um, But I figured out that's what I really wanted. And I didn't have that. But at the time, I was just starting into my relationship with Katie. And we just celebrated our 43rd wedding anniversary uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so we've been together for 45 years. And so that started that moment where I realized, wow, that's what I really want. Why aren't I putting my whole heart and soul and commitment into it? And so I made a commitment to her that, you know, has been big enough that it's lasted through 45 years and 2 billion frequent flyer miles and visits to Oprah in Chicago and visits to the Taj Mahal and all the things that we've done in our lives come from some sort of commitment. And so, you know, I can't overstate the value of heartfelt commitment, because that's really your entry ticket to the good things of life. So that's one thing you can do is sit down and it doesn't take long, but figure out what are the most important things for you. That's your yeses. And, but then you got to figure out what are your no's. Like the month before I met Katie, I, I sometimes say she's the answer to a prayer because the month before I met her, in 1979, I had been in this on-again, off-and-on relationship for years with a woman named Carol, and we had, on this one magic day, I was in an argument with her. We'd get back together, and then we'd argue, and we'd be apart for a few months or a few days or something, and, but I realized I was in the middle of this argument, and I had the insight, oh, this is not our 500th argument. This is our 500th run through of the same argument. I saw how it all went. Like one of us would not tell the truth about something and then would begin to project onto the other person, you know, to criticize the other person. And then the other person would make a run for the victim position. And then both people would fight out of the victim position until they got tired of it and changed the subject. And so I saw that pattern. And I actually, I probably did spend about an hour going back to my cottage and thinking, okay, what are my, what I call then my three absolute yeses and my three absolute no's about relationship? And so I said, okay, I want somebody that I can be honest 100% of the time. I want somebody I can, that will take responsibility. If I take responsibility for something, I'd had the experience. If I, if I said, okay, I take responsibility for this, Carol would say, 
See, it is all your fault. And uh, but what I was looking for is her to take personal responsibility too, and for both of us to come at it that way rather than fighting for the victim position. So I said, okay, I want somebody who's willing to take responsibility. And my third one was I want somebody who's really committed to their creativity. Because one thing I had seen is when I was really grooving on my creativity, I didn't complain about my relationship very much. You know, it was only when I was cheating on my creativity that I began to find fault with other people. So I was cheating myself and then looking for other people that were cheating me. And so I said, okay, I want a person who's got those three things. So I don't have to think about that or argue about that. And um, then my three absolute no's were, I want somebody who's not addicted to some chemical. Because I had been in a relationship with a person who was, you know, a secret alcoholic, I would say now, looking back at it. And she came from that kind of family too. But I didn't see it at the time, you know, as I was so lost in the drama with her. The second thing, I got in a relationship with another woman who was a, a Valium enthusiast. And so that kept her from kind of being in the present. She was always sort of one beat away from the present. And so I said, okay, I don't want any more chemical addict. And number two, I don't want any more relationships with people who have a lot of other dramas going on. And because I've been in a relationship where this person was always consumed in a drama at work and would come in the door in the evening talking about that, leave in the morning talking about it. And I was really tired of that. And I'm, I'm having trouble thinking at the moment of what my third absolute no was. And maybe it'll come to me. But what I'm saying is I made a commitment to creating a relationship where those three things could happen. And a month later, <laughs> lo and behold, I met the person that fulfilled all of those qualities. What yeah. a blessing. And what also, amazing thing. And, and really what an amazing thing it is to have the audacity <laughs> to become really present and to really take a good look at your life. It is the right reward for that kind of action because most people are so unconscious and it requires really beautiful awareness to have done the work you did to see that. What I notice about my own life and working with the women that I've worked with so, so many amazing people who listen to this show over the last seven years, there's, there's a lack of self-worth that I see. And when you talked about how important it is for women to say what they say yes to and what they say no to, there's definitely a sort of conditioning where I see a lot of women overfunction, right? They're depleted. So there's almost like a rebuilding of the self-worth to where they have to kind of understand like a light switch goes on and maybe you can help with this is to share what what might we want to understand about the fact that it's not selfish to say no and you actually can create a life that you like. I think there's just a lot that's carried down from one generation of another where women didn't necessarily see their mothers or their grandmothers show up for themselves. There's just this inherent feeling that if you want to be a good person, you just always say yes. And being depleted is just something that is. And you don't put up boundaries or expectations of anyone. And therefore, 
we don't even begin to ask questions like you're even posing. And so I think we need to redefine what is actually permissible and it doesn't make you selfish. It actually creates really beautiful intimacy opportunities and health and good modeling for your kids. And it's awesome in every relationship to have yeses and boundaries and no's and clarity and what makes you feel good. And I just, I see it in myself and in a lot of women, just the, the lack of feeling worthy of having that. They always need to be nice and they just don't even know a life without over functioning and hypervigilance. I got massive early training in that because my mother, I grew up in a single parent family. My mother's a very powerful person and she was the mayor of my town for a while. Oh my God. And uh, so she had a lot of, and she also wrote a daily column in the newspaper. She was a newspaper journalist. And so she was an extremely busy person. And the phone would ring and it would be somebody from my fifth grade or the teacher from the fifth grade class I was in. And they'd be asking her to make a dozen cookies or would you make two dozen cookies for this meeting? And my mother would always say, yes, yes, you know, in a very gracious way. But as soon as the phone came down, you know, she would blow up at having said yes to this. But the idea of saying no to it just wasn't in her vocabulary. And there's another thing, Kathy, that, you know, I've worked with a lot of powerful women and I work a lot with women entrepreneurs in their 30s and their 40s in my mentorship program. And one of the things that often women have to face that a lot of men don't have to face is in their programming, a lot of women are programmed to hang back and let the light go to somebody else, you know, to be facilitators of other people experiencing the light, but not willing to stand up in the light themselves. Uh, In in the big leap, I call it the fear of outshining. And a lot of times you get it growing up. Let's say you've got a family, particularly if there's a a golden boy or a golden girl that gets a lot of the goodies and and you kind of have to stand down from the light of that. Well, that's difficult programming, but at some point I've watched a lot of people step right out of that and understand that they have that fear of outshining, but go ahead and breathe through it, acknowledge it, and go ahead and do what you want to do anyway. Yeah, I think you really, and I'm glad that you addressed it, and I'm glad that those people get to work with you because I'm sure that's a giant gift and blessing. So as we're wrapping up, I'm just thinking of a couple other things that I'd want to ask you. And one of those things that comes to mind is I think that there's a question for people around what gives us more of the edge? What gives us more of the leap? Is it taking action or the inner work, right? Is it mantras, mindfulness and meditation, or is it getting an MBA and knowing what strategies to take and getting on the phone and making podcast episodes and writing books and whatever it is. What I love about this new book is it's it's giving you something to do each day, but a lot of it is something to be. It's sort of a mixture. And I'm curious what you think about the path to our potential and what's the balance between who we need to be and what we need to do. That's a beautiful question. The way I look at it is to look at what nature has given us with our breathing. 
there's an in-breath, and then there's an out-breath. And if you think about that as a metaphor for your creativity, that you have to have a balance between receptivity, what you take in, the in-breath, and the out-breath, what you put out into the world. And so a lot of times when people come here, they've been on such an out-breath that they're kind of depleted because they've been going, Right, right. <laughs> and not taking that, ah, oh, that in-breath. And so that's why sometimes when people come here and they go in a room for 10 minutes and they just have a question like, what do I most love to do? They come out beaming from head to toe because they haven't really had a chance sure. to drop into themselves. And so think of yourself as an exquisitely designed creativity machine that needs to be balanced between what you take in and what you give out. If you sit all day watching game shows on television, you're taking in a lot, but you're not probably giving out very much. And so a lot of people get unbalanced that way. So work on balance of how much you receive versus how much you give, because the two need to be, you know, if you're giving, 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 You're overworking, you're stressing yourself out, and you're setting yourself up to be a martyr. Martyrs are no fun to be around. No. I I have many of them in my family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the last things I'm thinking to ask you is you said earlier this beautiful question, and you referred to it just before, which is this, you know, what do you really want to do question? And you talked about your zone of genius as you sort of have gone through your life, really expanding how much time you spend doing what you want to be doing, really living your life where most of your time you're spending in that in that flow state, really in that place of being really alive and awake to what really makes you feel like you're playing in your zone of genius. And I think for some people that's radical. Like they feel like if you knew my life, my circumstances, my obligations, it must be nice for you. But Real life is I have to do this job, take care of this thing, da 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 And I'm curious if you can paint a picture or shed some light on the fact that that might actually be possible, but we may be tolerating a whole paradigm and life that we're saying yes to when we don't realize there's a whole other place that we can yeah. be living. And... um I think that it would just be remarkable if people could spend even one hour. When you said I was only spending one hour a day in my zone of genius, I'm like, most people um, I know don't spend an hour a day in their zone yeah, of genius. Yeah. They maybe do that once every three years on a vacation because by accident, this thing happened and they did this thing that they loved or they had this great conversation. <laughs> so because I want people to buy this book, I, I kind of want you to crack that open a little bit so that they can even leave this conversation understanding that this is a potential in reality. Yes. Well, that's actually one of the main reasons I wrote the new book is because, of, you know, I would get letters from people and say, give me something I can do in 20 minutes. And another person would write in, give me something I can do in 10 minutes. And then another yeah. person would write, give me something I can do in a minute. And so the new book is all about what you can do in a minute or so to enhance your genius. And that. if you can't spend a minute, I don't know if I can help. <laughs> but, uh, ideally, the way we ask people to start is actually with only 10 minutes 
And we actually asked them to find it in their calendar and put it in every day for the next couple of weeks. Where's that 10 minutes going to be? Because until you get a little bit disciplined about your genius, you don't have really a prayer of bringing it up online. Just like, you know, if you don't go up on the internet for 10 minutes, you're not going to be able to find the stuff uh, you need to look up. So it takes a little bit of investment in the beginning, but we, we say, you know, if you can't find 10 minutes, you know, look out. <laughs> but uh, we found that everybody we talked to, not just people who come here, but I just did a workshop out in uh, Boulder, Colorado, where I had a lot of people there that were um, kind of newbies. They didn't hadn't read the book much or anything like that. But even if you've got a lot of pressure on your life, take that 10 minutes. Like I had a guy in my mentorship program that wanted to write a book, but he only could find 20 minutes a day in his schedule. He's a big, busy Wall Street guy and everything. And so he made a commitment to writing his book, and he wrote for 20 minutes every morning, just what he had time for. And by the end of the year, he'd written a 240-page book. Wow. It was amazing, you know, in 20 minutes a day. That's amazing. So, yeah. If you, can get, if you can get 20 minutes, great. I know you can write a book, but if you can only get 10 minutes, do something else creative in that time. I just want to clarify something for people, because when we talk about genius, I think there are people who are like, I don't need this book. I don't have anything I'm genius at. Like they think of genius as a IQ that makes you a genius, you know, like help people understand what does that mean to play in your zone of genius? Yes. Genius has nothing to do with IQ. Genius has to do with bringing forth creative solutions even like, you know, one of my old mentors, Abraham Maslow said, it doesn't matter if you're making a genius soup or writing a genius symphony. You're doing the same thing. You're making something that you love to do, that you're uniquely suited to do, that makes a contribution to other people. And so your genius is often hidden in the stuff you're already doing. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's one of the big questions I ask people is, Look through your workday or whatever you do and find that sweet spot where you're doing things and you're in the groove. And what is it that you're doing when you're in that groove? You know, are you working with people or are you designing a piece of technology or, or what? Cause everybody's got little, little bit different unique abilities. And thank goodness, because that's what it takes to create our world. I love that. Tell us when this book is coming out and tell us where we can get it. Yes. Well, hopefully everywhere. You'll get it everywhere on all the good bookstores and Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all the good places, Books A Million. And it'll be out in February. And it's not a book that you have to start on January 1st. You start wherever you are during the year. It starts with day one, and then you go through day 366. Why 366? Because it's a leap year. It's perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Thank you so much for the work you do and for loving life and loving people so much because these are such beautiful insights and and it's such an incredible path to take with you sort of in our pocket because I think that we can be happier than we are and those are things that are possible and you've helped chart a course to that. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you for using your genius zone to bring great information to so many people. It's obvious that you 
love what you're doing and uh, are doing great work in the world. So many happy returns on that. Thank you. It means so much. And it's such a blessing. Also, your relationship. And it's such an incredible model for so many people. That's not lost on me. What a huge thing that is in this world today to have built something so honest and loving. And it's an awesome thing, including all your books. That's like one of your best legacies. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Thank you, Dr. Hendricks. Thanks a lot, Kathy. It's such a joy talking to Dr. Hendricks. He's such a gem. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, commitment gets you into the game. Make a heartfelt commitment because that's really your entry ticket to the good things in life. Number two, catch the drift and make the shift. Think of yourself as a recommitment machine. You get into the game with a commitment, but what's going to get you in there is recommitment. Number three, tell yourself, every day I grow my genius more and more, and every day I do more of what I most love to do. And every day that I do more of what I love, it makes the biggest impact and contribution to other people's lives. Number four, we get to where we want to get in life, becoming masters of yes and masters of no. Number five, breathe through the fear. Acknowledge it and go ahead and do what you want to do anyway. You deserve to shine. And number six, your genius often is hiding in what you're already doing. All right, now I want to shout out a few amazing alumni from our podcast program. Let's give it up for Catherine Garland and her podcast, Homespun, Create the Life You Crave. Jerry Bossy and her podcast, Living Life in Awe. Kalila Siciliano's podcast, Pushing Through Loss. And Donna Monroe's podcast, The Well Mess. Such incredible, awesome human beings. I love these women. It takes such courage to put your voice in the world. And I want to commend you for taking that brave step forward. I know how much the world needs you. Thank you for listening. I know I say this all the time, but I really, really mean it. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We have great episodes coming up. Nate Berkus is going to be here. Jamie Kern Lima is coming back. So many good episodes. So please follow along on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening so you don't miss out. And if you're a fan of what we do here, leave us a review because it's the easiest way to support us. It helps other people who haven't heard about the show to find it. And if you can think of someone who would love this episode, if the answer is yes, go ahead and send them the link or post about this on your Instagram. And don't forget, if you're curious about starting a podcast and I really do think that that's an amazing thing to be curious about. I think it's an incredible way for you to make your mark, to let your voice be heard, to start really curating an audience that's really about engagement. If you want to start that, go to kathyheller.com slash checklist and grab your free checklist so you can get started. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song and I hope you have an amazing week. Shade of blue It's the way that I
I can't do I feel like I'm brand new 